Good morning. This is Jake Brown, and I'm the preacher at Liberty Christian Church in beautiful Madison, Indiana. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m., and you can find us at 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. We love to meet new people, and we love to make ourselves available to help others learn the true story of who Jesus is, what he did, why he did it, and how to personally get in on the story. Well, it's just about time for the sermon to start, so turn up the volume, tune out the distractions, and it's my prayer that you find this morning's message engaging and meaningful. Why do people always have to ruin everything? (laughs) You know what I mean? Why do we have this tendency to mess things up when things are going so good? You can probably think of a handful of situations right off the top of your head where something was going great, all the parts were falling into place, a great result felt so close, and then somebody did something stupid and messed the whole thing up. Am I right? This happens in the sports world all the time. Your team has held it together all game long. They've made great plays. They're working together really well as a team. And all is well as we approach the closing stages of the game. You couldn't ask for a better opportunity. Your team is in a perfect position for a big win. And then foul, penalty, turnover, frustration, right? Depending on the severity of the infraction and how much time is left in the game, the opportunity for that big win just might be gone. Many times we judge the best team to be the one that makes the least mistakes or the team that doesn't make big mistakes in those big moments. Other times we marvel at the team who's able to recover from a devastating mistake. Some teams have the discipline to overcome the consequences of their own weaknesses. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it. There's a way that works and there's a way that doesn't. This kind of scenario is not unique to the sports world. We see it play out in our lives all the time, right? We've all experienced it. We've all made the mistake or suffered from the mistakes of others. And we've probably all learned that there is a right way and a wrong way to deal with these situations and overcome these situations. This morning... We're finishing up our message series on the book of Ezra as we look one more time at these Israelites who had been defeated, taken captive, and now given an opportunity to return and rebuild for the Lord. We're going to look at the biggest weapon Satan has in his arsenal to derail the church's efforts to return. And so this morning's message is called Sin and Returning. Sin and returning. And here's the big idea here. Here's the main point that I want you to get, what I want you to understand from today's message. When the Lord's people start working together as a team, making those great plays together, making great strides together, and a big win is on the horizon, each and every single one of us needs to be very aware, keenly aware of the temptation to sin, to to blow it. When it comes to the return that we're trying to make, we don't want sin creating a big fourth quarter blunder for us. But when it happens, if it happens, there is still a way to overcome it. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of Ezra and the rest of the gang one more time this morning as we look at an episode where they face this kind of situation themselves. So as we come to chapter 9, I want you to remember where we are in the story here. 
You remember what happened last week? We were introduced to Ezra finally, this priest and scribe, and Ezra is given these wonderful permissions from the Persian king. We won't rehash all of that, but hopefully you at least remember that the Persian king decreed that any Israelites living within the borders of his kingdom could go with Ezra to make that return trip to Jerusalem. And so Ezra leads this second band of Israelites to Jerusalem, and at the end of chapter 8, we hear that they made it. God used Ezra. God protected him and all the Israelites with him. God provided for them, and they made it safely to Jerusalem. And so now as we begin chapter 9, what we are about to hear probably happened within a few weeks to a few months of their arrival in Jerusalem. We know from some information that's given to us in chapter 10 that this could not have been more than four months later, but probably, like we said, a few weeks to a few months after they arrived in Jerusalem. So follow along with me here as we start reading from chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9, hopefully you've got your Bible out and open and ready to follow along. Ezra chapter 9, starting in verse 1. The Bible says, Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Now, we'll stop right there for just a moment. I hope you caught what's going on here because just these first three verses really highlight for us the seriousness of sin. I want us to, to really notice this, the seriousness of sin. Here in the first verse, Ezra learns that the Israelites who have returned with him to Jerusalem haven't remained separate from the people there. They've intermarried themselves and their children to all these foreign people. Now, <clears throat> listen, this was a really big deal, but not because God is against uh, interracial marriage or anything silly like that. Here's what we need to understand so that we don't misunderstand the problem here and so that we can really grasp the weight of the sin that's going on here. In the Bible, when races are mentioned in this kind of context, it's not an issue with an ethnicity because of where the people are from or because of the way they talk or because of the color of their skin or their hair or any other of that unimportant stuff. It's all about their religious practices. When you hear Canaanite, Hittite, Perizzite, Jebusite, Ammonite, Moabite, Egyptian, and Amorite, there are wicked so-called religious practices associated with each one of these groups of people. God knows good and well that the religious practices of these people at this time were, were wicked and sinful and completely incompatible with his righteousness. There's no way that a follower of God could marry someone whose religious practices included placing a live baby in a jar and burying said infant alive to the glory of their quote-unquote gods. We have archaeological evidence that this was indeed practiced by some of these people. We've dug up the, the remains in the jars. We know that they did things like this and, and even other uh, abominations, just terrible, terrible things that they did in the names of their gods. And you couldn't marry these people without adopting their religious practices. 
There are a variety of reasons that Israelites might want to create a, uh, a cross-cultural bond like this, I suppose. Uh, Israelites were kind of at the bottom of the social pecking order, so marrying into these other families would be a way to, to kind of move up the ladder a little bit. But the fact of the matter is this. This is the same kind of sin that landed them as slaves in bondage to foreign armies who defeated them and destroyed their city, destroyed the temple of God. This is the sin that saw them lose what God had so graciously given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a protection from foreign armies, blessing on top of blessing. As we consider all this, we shouldn't be surprised now to see how obviously serious their sin was to Ezra. Remember how Ezra reacted? We read it there in verse 3. Verse 3, Ezra says, When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Ezra was shocked. He was appalled, the scripture says. He was disgusted. He was overwhelmed with sadness. Tearing your robe was something that they would do to to demonstrate a, a serious emotional response. But tearing hair from your head or your beard, as you might expect, was reserved for the most serious of responses. Obviously, it would be extremely painful. Uh, of course, but also the beard itself was a symbol of of age, and so therefore a, a symbol of wisdom and honor. So you wouldn't just go ripping that out if it wasn't a very, very serious issue. This sermon series may be coming to a close today, but as we continue in the coming weeks and months and even throughout the years, we need to take sin seriously, like Ezra. Listen, we've been in sin before. Praise and and thank God for the fact that those uh, here today listening uh, who have truly obeyed the gospel, uh, you've been rescued. We've been rescued from slavery to sin, those of us who are Christians. Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we cannot wrap up this series of messages about the returning that we need to make here at Liberty Christian Church without recognizing the seriousness of sin and the role that Satan wants it to play in our efforts. What a shame it would be on our way toward this wonderful spiritual goal if we who have been rescued from the domain of darkness, forgiven of our sins, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, were then found to be entangled in sin again, controlled by its lusts. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. You see, it's more than just a shame. It's a situation that God's Word says is worse than the previous state. As I mentioned before, as we start working together for the Lord, coming out of this mental state of COVID captivity and returning to serving the Lord as we know we need to be, each and every single one of us needs to be keenly aware of the temptation to sin. Satan is going to see to it that that temptation is put before us. As we continue on here, we see that Ezra's reaction to the sin of Israel did not go unnoticed. Ezra chapter 9 verse 4 says, Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, 
and I sat appalled until the evening offering. So, so people noticed what was going on. They saw uh, Ezra's reaction, and the people who trembled because of the word of the Lord, the people uh, who are concerned about this unfaithfulness uh, that was taking place and that Ezra was responding to, they gathered to him. They came to where he was. Now listen to what happened next. Ezra chapter 9, verses 5 and 6 now. It says, But at the evening offering... I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, O my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. There's a lesson for us that I want us to see here. Transgression requires confession. Transgression requires confession. You see, Ezra here, he didn't just get mad. Ezra didn't immediately try to figure out how to fix this himself. Ezra didn't start scrambling around planning how he could cover up this embarrassment. After his initial response of complete shock and dismay, and as several of the exiles had gathered around him, Ezra took this issue before God. And notice that Ezra didn't say, Dear God, you know how weak we are. It's no wonder these people have sinned this way. They're only human, Lord. Have mercy on them. They they can't help it, and they probably don't even realize what they're doing. Ezra didn't say that. Ezra didn't make excuses for the people or, or try to shift the blame. Ezra was open and honest. Transgression requires open and honest confession. Listen, I get it. Just because we all know that God knows everything doesn't mean that it's not scary to openly admit your guilt to him but it's what we need to do. Ezra didn't sugarcoat anything. In verse 10, Ezra chapter 9, verse 10, he said, Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. See, Ezra just told it like it was. God, we've been unfaithful. You've told us what you require of us. You've been clear. You've given us commands. And we forsook them. We did our own thing. We rebelled. We are guilty. We need to follow Ezra's example. And though it can be scary, we we have to be open and honest with God. There's a right way and a wrong way to deal with sin. Open and honest with God is the right way. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 says this. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see here, the the New Testament shows us that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us, just like he promised he would. But this New Testament passage also warns us, if we're dishonest about our sin, if we're less than open about our sin, we're deceiving ourselves, we're calling God a liar, and his truth is not in us. As we march forward in this returning that we're working toward, if we find ourselves in sin, we need to remember the right way to deal with this sin. We need to remember that the right way to deal with this includes going to God and being open and honest. Transgression requires confession. Now let's look at what happened next here. Ezra chapter 10 now. Uh, Fast forward here with me to Ezra chapter 10. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Ezra chapter 10, starting in verse 1, the Bible says, Now while Ezra was praying 
and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept bitterly. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. I believe that we can learn a lesson here about what I'm calling the difficult detachment. The difficult detachment. You see, it's not enough to just confess. We need to do that. But it's not enough to just confess. We can't stop there. Too often we make a quick confession, we ask for forgiveness, and we turn right around and we fall into the same old traps. And it's not necessarily because we weren't genuine in our confession and our uh, desire to be forgiven, but simply because we didn't follow through with an actual plan to detach ourselves from the sin and from the situations that so easily gave birth to that sin. In the case of these Israelites that Ezra is dealing with here, they hadn't just been consumed by foreign religions, involved in idolatry and immoral acts of worship. Remember, they married into this. There, there was a, a covenant relationship that brought them into this sin. This was a little bit complicated, okay? Separating themselves from this sin wasn't going to be something that was going to be simple or immediate. We don't have time to, to read the remainder of chapter 10, but when you do that on your own this week, you'll see that they created a plan to handle this the right way. It took a little bit of time, but they began the difficult work of detaching themselves from the sin that they had gotten involved in. The New Testament supports this same concept, you guys, that we have to buckle down and do the difficult work of detaching ourselves from the sin that we find ourselves involved in. It sounds so obvious, but it's a real issue in the church, and it always has been. How many times have you or somebody that you know said, yeah, you know, I, I would have to give up this or that. Yeah, but, but you don't understand. I, I have to do this or that. You know what I mean? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Christian, if you are struggling with cussing, if you're struggling with dirty jokes always coming to mind, if you're struggling with drinking, if you're struggling with lust, detach yourself from these things. Do the difficult work of detaching yourself from the things that, that swing that temptation door wide open. Quit watching the TV shows and the movies today that promote sexual immorality, profane language, vulgar jokes, drinking, violence, and a host of other ungodly habits. I don't care if the movies or the music or the books are quote-unquote classics. Detach yourself. You can't afford not to. I'll bet nearly all of us have had someone or, or a whole group of someones that we need to detach ourselves from. A group of people who tempt us who foster bad behavior, who require that we worship their gods if we're going to be a part of their circle. Guys, it's our unwillingness to detach ourselves from these sources of temptation that keep us going back over 
and over and over again, falling back into the same sin over and over and over again, and it needs to stop. Again, you can't afford to refuse to detach yourself from these things. We're going to press forward with this returning. We know it's what we need to do. We know it's the right thing to do. And we're still looking for more volunteers to come on board and go along with us. We're tired of COVID captivity. We're ready to return and rebuild what we had before we were paralyzed by this pandemic. We're ready to grow and go again. And as we do, please don't forget the seriousness of sin, the fact that transgression requires confession, and finally, as we just covered, we must be willing to make the difficult detachment from the sin that so easily entangles us. As we finish things up here this morning, I'd like to ask those of you listening on the radio right now the most important question that any of us could ever be asked. It's a question that each and every single one of us needs to be able to answer honestly. Here's the question. If the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure, no doubts whatsoever, that you would go to live with him forever? Do you know for certain that he's gonna let you into heaven? Can a person even know? Well, I've got good news. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, the Apostle John writes that we can know. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, that's good news. I want to know that I have eternal life. Now, let's back up just a little bit, and I want to show you a reality that's in the scriptures that we need to deal with. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, scripture says there's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So according to the Bible here, somebody's going to get in trouble when Jesus returns. Somebody's going to pay. Who did this passage of scripture say was going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction? Well, there are two groups listed, right? Number one, those who do not know God. And secondly, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, maybe you know God. I hope you do. But let me ask you this, have you obeyed the gospel? Before you answer that, let's make sure we know what the gospel is. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But what is it? What is the gospel? We know what it does. We know uh, the power that it holds, but what is the gospel? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, the Bible interprets itself here. The, the Apostle Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel 
which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So, there are three main statements that make up the gospel. Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, Christ was raised on the third day. The Bible teaches us that his death paid the price for our sin, and his resurrection made eternal life possible for us. So now that we understand what the gospel is, let's get back to our question, how do we obey the gospel? I want to read Romans chapter 6, just verses 3 and 4 for you, and I want you to listen and see if you can hear all three parts of the gospel being played out here, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The Bible says here in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Did you catch that? Did, did you find the three parts of the gospel there? When we are baptized, the Bible says, we are baptized into Christ's death. When we are baptized, the Bible says, we are buried with Christ. And finally, when we are baptized, we are raised up as Christ was raised from the dead so that we too will walk in newness of life. Now folks, the Bible makes it clear you must believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. According to several scriptures, for instance, Matthew 16, 16, John 1, 1, John 1, 14, John 8, 58, Colossians 2, 9, and Hebrews 1, 8. According to those passages, we learn that Jesus is the Christ, the one who would come to save us from our sins. We learn that he is the son of the living God. We learn that he himself is God, one of the three distinct personalities that make up God. And we learn that he is God the son who came to earth in human form. Folks, we must hear the gospel and believe it. We must trust Jesus completely. We must make a distinct turn away from sinful living and toward God's holiness and righteousness. The Bible calls this change in our behavior, repentance. We must confess our belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, we must obey the gospel through baptism. That's where we're immersed in water by the authority of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is indeed where we are baptized into Christ's death, into his burial, and raised up to newness of life by the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from death. And Acts 2.38 and Acts 22.16 make it clear that at our baptism, our sins are forgiven, washed away. 1 Peter 3.21 literally says, baptism saves us. Galatians 3.26-27 teaches us that through faith and as a result of our baptism, we become children of God, clothed with Christ. So let me ask you again, if the Lord were to return today, do you know for sure, with no doubts whatsoever, that you would go to live with him forever? 
If you haven't obeyed the gospel, please know that we would love to talk with you about your situation. We would love to answer any questions you have. We would appreciate the opportunity to discuss with you the costs of following Christ. If you're interested, keep listening, and we'll tell you how you can get in touch with us in just a moment. I'm Jake Brown, and on behalf of the church, I want to thank you for listening to today's broadcast. If you're in the area, I want to encourage you to join us in person at Liberty Christian Church at one of our Sunday services. We meet at 1030 a.m. each and every Sunday morning at 8774 North U.S. Highway 421, Madison, Indiana. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, there are a few different ways that you can do that. Just call 812-273-1518. Or you can also reach out to us on Facebook, or you can send us a message directly from our website. Now, speaking of our website, if you'd like to hear this message again or to listen to other messages, just go to our website, www.liberty-christian.com. But again, we'd love to have you join us in person if you're physically able to do so. Jesus created his church as a body of people. His church is a family made up of sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have been called to meet together regularly. The pattern that we see from the church in the Bible is that they met every Sunday. So if you're able, come meet with us next Sunday right here at Liberty Christian Church in beautiful Madison, Indiana. We love you, God loves you, and it is our prayer that he will bless you this week as you seek his truth.